um, talking about wisdom, looking through the book of Proverbs, which is a book that it's called wisdom literature. It, it's full of wise sayings, ways in which to help you navigate life, life in its complexities, life in, in all of its um, ways in which we need to have uh, understanding so that we don't mess up. And we've been consistently referencing this idea of wisdom as wisdom is the ability to understand life and to navigate it well. But that, that is more than just having logic, a uh, well-founded logic to understand kind of the irreducible realities of life. It, it's also an emotion. It's the ability to understand how, we, how we're wired in life. So in other words, wisdom is something you develop. That's good news for you if you feel like you've been somebody who's lacked wisdom or, or, or done foolish things. By the way, that's all of us. But, but that's good news because wisdom is something we develop because it's both of those things come together. It's, it's bringing together logic and understanding those principles for life and its complexities while understanding the world and how we function in the world. That's why over the last few weeks we've been focusing on emotions. And I know if you're not a feeler, you're probably struggling with this. But, but they're in the text. And they're part of us. And they help us not only understand ourselves, but how to navigate the world around us. And so today we're actually going to look at shame. And I know as we look at shame, some of you are already looking at the exits, wondering how quickly you can get out. Um, it's actually something that is rooted quite deeply in Scripture and very much in the Proverbs. So let me, with that introduction, read for you our text this morning. I said Proverbs 18, reading uh, verse 10 to 13. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Now, I would define or, or help us understand shame in relation to wisdom, in relation to the Proverbs this way. Shame is the residue of folly. Folly being the antithesis, that's the opposite of wisdom. And, and, and if shame is the residue of folly, it's that thing that sours our relationships, spoils our investment. It, it's the thing that actually um, helps us when we, we look at ourselves, it, it erodes us from the inside out. Shame is both a noun and a verb. It's something that you can have, but it's also a way in which you can act or inflict an action upon someone else. And Proverbs treats it both ways. Shame, if you were to simply open up your dictionaries, would say this, it is the conscious awareness of one's guilt, shortcomings, and impropriety. So, so let me help you get good handles on this word shame this morning. Uh, guilt refers to uh, well-placed shame. We can have shame that, that actually helps or is understandable, and, and, and we'll speak to that more in a moment. But well-placed shame in guilt would be, I, I'm, I'm conscious, I'm aware, I, I am caught in my rebellion, in my poor decision-making, in my folly, in my criminality. Guilt is what you see on a kid's face when they're reaching into the cookie jar when you told them not to. And that is a well-placed shame because it tells us I am in the wrong. But there is a, a, a misplaced shame as well. And this speaks to our shortcomings. You, you can realize in a moment that you don't measure up and that is misplaced shame. A, an Olympic athlete 
who comes from a small and impoverished nation and is the one athlete that gets to represent his country and yet is woefully inadequate compared to the superstar athletes of the world powers around them who lap him and yet he finishes the race, feels a misplaced shame that ought not be there. Why? Because of a shortcoming. I didn't measure up. Shame tells us I'm not good enough. I don't belong. And and shame also speaks to impropriety. That's that sense of embarrassment, like showing up to a formal event in your flip-flops. Did that the other day. I was not guilty. I was not caught in my shortcomings, but I was embarrassed because I felt like, and I was made to feel like, hey, dude, you don't belong. And so there was shame. This is how shame works. Shame, and as we talk about it this morning, we need to talk about its nature. We need to talk about its posture, and we need to talk about its place. Because when I speak to its nature, it it does several things all at once. And sometimes these come in waves, or they kind of happen simultaneously within us. It pushes us out, it drives us inward, and it pulls us apart. Here's what I mean by it pushes us out. We, We see shame early in our Bibles. If you're new to the Bible, open up to the first opening pages and scenes, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. First book, second chapter. And, and we'll see that shame is, is actually not a part of God's design, but something that is a consequence of our rebellion and our sin. Shame is what comes into the picture and, and pushes humanity out of God's presence. If you're not familiar with this story, and I would encourage you to get there because it's not meant to oversimplify, but actually just help us understand that we are, we share in the inheritance of humanity's first representatives, man and woman, who in their rebellion said, God, not your design, but my design. They reach out and choose a life for themselves. And the consequence of that is shame. And, and, they, and it pushes them out. They, they look around at, at the rebellion inside themselves, the consequences of what they've done, the brokenness of the relationship that they have with God, themselves, and the world. And they say, I don't belong here. It pushes us out. It, it, I mean, you just play that onwards. It, whenever there is shame, you want to get out of that situation. It's such an uncomfortable, undesirable, unpleasant feeling. You just you want to run and hide. In fact, it drives us inwards. I mean, it's this in, inescapable feeling of disqualification. That's shame. It's a sense in which, again, go, go to... Genesis chapter 2 and 3. In chapter 3, we see that overcome by shame. It's kind of a funny and yet very heavy moment where humanity, in trying to remedy their shame, they're driven inwards and and they deal with that both in an, an external and internal way. They, you know, externally, they're like, I have to, I have to cover up. It, it actually, the description we have of God's design before our rebellion was Genesis 2, verse 25. It says, they were in the garden and had no shame. It's, it, it never ceases. I, I know I've mentioned that before, but it never ceases to astound me and, and drive my curiosity deeper that the description of our, our right relationship with God is not the absence of something we've lost, but the presence of something that we've created that destroys our relationship with God. He didn't want this for us. And yet now we have it. In fact, our human nature and and our our human understanding is colored by so much of shame that you can't really even comprehend life without it. 
You know, and there's, there's something humorous even, like husband and wife, the moment they feel shame, they decide to make, you know, crude and hastily fashioned clothes. It's like, I've seen you this way before. And yet they have to hide, and they have to hide from God. So there's this internal work of shame that, that I need to hide by, by removing myself. We drive ourselves deep. And, and, and here's the cultural narrative. As a, just, I'm going to step aside from the message a little bit and critique our culture. I actually do that for a bit. Because it says this, speak your truth. Thanks, Oprah. You know, just look down deep. Because perhaps as we are driven deep in our shame, there's something in the core of who we are that's admirable and praiseworthy. And if we kind of exhume that and put it on display before the world, everybody's going to clap and applaud and we'll all kind of go, yeah, that's, that's, that's going to outdo your shame and make you feel okay. And, and we know it's a fool's errand. It's a fool's errand because not only are we looking for something that isn't there, the only one who gives us value that actually builds us up is an outside voice. And so here's the cultural agreement that we've all made. You celebrate me and I'll celebrate you and we'll all come out of this okay because we're agreeing to a contract that is simply this. Perhaps if I think I'm okay, you'll think I'm okay too. So speak your truth. Okay. If you want to have coffee with me and dial into that a little bit more, if I pricked your conscience, I am okay with that because this is the nature of shame. This is how our culture has chosen to remedy that. And, and there's something that it, it begins to, to, to touch and speak into its actual healing, but it doesn't go all the way. In fact, uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson, a Christian psychologist and psychiatrist, writes a book, The Soul of Shame. If, if this is really stirring up in, in you, uh, more research and study, go ahead and read that. But he would say it this way. We are born with this bent towards shame as people who are thrown, kicking and cre- uh, screaming into the world, looking for somebody who's looking at us. I mean, if, if you're a parent, you know that to be true. If you're an adult and you're honest with yourself, you know that's still the case. I am looking for somebody in this world who's looking at me. And when all eyes are fixed on other things, we are driven inward and it is a lonely and isolating place. And now I'm hinting at what is actually the remedy which can heal and, and begin to do a deeper work that, that helps bring us out of shame. But when that isn't there, this is the consequence of relationships. It pulls us apart. We, we see that early again in, in the opening pages, is that, that it fractures relationships. It pulls us apart. It, it causes us to run away. It causes us to feel so just horrible and terrible inside that we'll do anything to make it stop. Listen, I, I've been this tall since about the sixth or seventh grade. Some of you are like, that's awesome. Not really. I've been, like my child, like the, the latter half of my grade school life, I remember being head and shoulders taller than all my peers and usually my teachers as well. And, and, and you add on to that all the things that you hear as a young person who, by the way, most young persons are figuring themselves out and they're, you know, awkward and, and gangly as it is. And when you embody that, it's just that much more uh, a worse thing. You, I don't belong here. I was made to hear that every day. Freak, you must be in the wrong class. Are you here to teach us? Were you held back? So you, you learn those things. You speak those things. They become who you are. You're, you're too big, too dumb, too slow. 
And you, you find a place and a way of both internally and externally embodying that in, in how we act. This, this is where we would transition into the posture of shame because the posture of shame is this. We want to hide. You know, I, I learned to hide physically by I just slouched, rounded my shoulders, sat deep into my desk whenever I could because I wanted to feel and look small. Perhaps I could hide. You know, I, I tell you often that I'm a professional extrovert, introvert by nature, but I love people. I think that's part of my development in that I just didn't know where I belonged. And while this is kind of gone in me, there is an echo that still speaks into me that is the residue of shame. And then you look for, you, you hide, you, you, you look for any way to kind of cover up. And then you look for the places where I'm somebody looking for somebody who's looking at me. And you know what? As a young person who, who stood that tall, I found it in sports because the coaches were like drooling. Like, I don't care if you, you have the coordination of Bambi. You're on the team. Just hold the ball high. And that's where I found my community. That's where I found my belonging. You see, the posture of shame, again, is to hide. And if you're like, Aaron, are you ever going to get to the text that we just read? Again, look at verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, like a high wall in his imagination. When we want to hide because of shame, we will pick up anything that makes us feel safe to our imagination. Sports became my, my safe place. But you know what? They, that, that changed after a while. When, because how do we navigate shame? We, we run, we hide. But what do you do with all of a sudden your teammates become shameful of their ability to contribute to the team when they have Shaquille O'Neal running down the court? And they're like, well, you're just good because you're a freak. Again, now you have shame. Shame that is built up because of their shame and their inability to perform. We want to run and hide, and we build up things of our imagination. I, I love that the text says this, uh, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. You know, we'll even pick up things that we think are good. That, that there's a cultural understanding or contract that, that it's something we all want, and so therefore perhaps it's a stronghold, a safe place for me to hide, and yet it's not. Again, if we were to go back to Genesis 2, verse 25, where it says that they were naked and felt no shame, that's more than what's on the surface. In the Hebrew, the, the, the original language of our Old Testament, it's speaking to uh, an idea of they were totally vulnerable, totally exposed. The, this is the place and, and the state of relationships in their health. In fact, shame becomes not just the consequence of our sin, but a great weapon of the enemy because it outright robs us of our ability to connect, create, and confess. Like, to connect. I've already kind of spoken to this at length, but again, we know that through shame, we want to hide and pull away from others, and we lose our ability to have genuine relationships. This is why married couples can be together 20, 30 years and be like, man, I'm still discovering who this person is. That does speak to the depth of our character and our personhood, but also the layers of shame that we've been hiding behind for years. 
Again, shame is, is like this layering effect. These are either things that I hide behind or, or layers of clothing that I put on so that maybe you don't actually discover the thing, the story, the event, whatever it might be that I want to just, just hide from you the most. It, it also destroys our ability to create. Now, not, not to get weird here, but the idea that God allows humanity to be his representation to creation and to participate in the created act by being vulnerable as husband and wife come together and therefore life is created, that also speaks to something of the image that if you're a creative type, heck, even if you're not a creative type, you know that your ability to design, develop, and create something is enhanced to the nth degree. It's probably only made possible in a place where you can be totally vulnerable where you can swing for the fence, and if you miss, that's okay. You're not going to be shot down by your team. You're not going to be criticized. Your ideas aren't going to be thrown uh, out the window. We know that our creativity, the ability to create, is made possible in vulnerability. And then our ability to confess. Again, I'm hinting towards something of the remedy of, of what shame is, but how can you confess to somebody when shame is telling you there is no possible way you can trust this with anybody. You, you actually want me to own up to that thing? No way. And this is why we grasp at any escape route possible when we feel shame. You see that in the text, in the opening scenes of Genesis 2 and into Genesis 3. I mean, there's something silly almost, you know, like... Humanity is dabbling with deception for the very first time that is very childlike. God comes marching into the garden, and, and they're not there to greet him. Something's off. All-knowing, all-powerful God. It's not like he's going, I wonder. And then when he calls for them, he knows where they are. They, they hide. They, they, they blame shift. They, they make up stories and excuses when the one thing that is actually the road towards healing is what? Confession. Shame removes that from us. It actually removes our ability to seek the cure. Now, again, seeing this in our text, look at chapter, or sorry, verses 12 and 13. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. But humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears it, his folly, sorry, it is his folly and shame. Again, shame and folly go hand in hand. Folly being the antithesis to wisdom, that action in which drives us into regret and drives us into mistakes. We know this to be true, that, that shame always acts out a behavior of a way towards or against behavior, sometimes all three. You know, away, we've talked about this. This is, I want to run and hide. You know, this, this is painful, this is awkward, this is unpleasant, so how can I get away from it? We even have this in our language. Have you ever said to your spouse as you came home from work, I just want to find a hole to crawl in and disappear? Maybe you're saying that about your spouse, so you say that to somebody else. You know, is there, is there a small corner available where I can just rot? That's how shame makes you feel. And we hide. And that can be, again, to our imagination. Again, this idea in verse 11, it's a refuge constructed our own imagination. We hide behind things that aren't going to make any difference, and yet we feel they will. Consider wealth, which is actually offered up in the text. We all want wealth. Wealth in itself isn't wrong. 
But you ask a wealthy person, does that, does that help mitigate your shame? Does that help manage those, those things that you feel are wrong about you and why you don't belong? If they're honest, probably the answer would be, well, really, no. Because we all do this. Perhaps if I accomplish much, perhaps if I gain much, perhaps if I'm a somebody, then I won't feel like a nobody. That's how we hide. But we also use towards behaviors. This, this is, in essence, is people-pleasing. Most pastors are people-pleasers, by the way. Because perhaps if, if, if I do good enough, you'll like me, and by you liking me, I'll be able to accept myself. So we'll, we'll give our efforts, and I'm not just saying as pastors, anybody who's using towards behavior or people-pleasing in their shame to, to go, you know what, if I win them over, perhaps their pleasure of me will convince me that I belong or that I'm okay. That's how it works. And we'll work to the nth degree. We'll, we'll, work, we'll work ourselves to death just trying to accept who we are through the pleasure of others. That's shame. And then we use against behaviors. Listen, if we can't convince people, we will antagonize them. If we can't convince them, we will attack them. And this is where our shame is rebounded on them. We see that as it says a, a, a haughty man, somebody who spouts off, somebody who thinks a lot of themselves, when that's not held in agreement with the community, well, then it's your fault. And so because I'm feeling shame, I'm going to inflict shame on you. And perhaps if you're holding more shame than I am, I might come out okay. This is the posture of shame. Shame wants us to escape ourselves by any means necessary. Now, I know this to be true. I, I know that we've all felt this. We all walk through this. Some of you might be feeling it very intently this morning. There is a story. There is an event. There is a memory. There is a regret. There is something attached to your life that is deeply held in the realm of shame. And this morning, I, I don't simply want to articulate what it is. I want to articulate what we do with it. Because there is a place for shame. I alluded to this already. You see, again, it's so distasteful, so destructive that our culture will do anything, and this is from a heart of compassion, to remove that from you. And, and we, we know that we find the remedy to shame as somebody finds us, somebody accepts us, somebody grants us shelter. Again, there is something inside of us that where we enter the room, we enter the world looking for people who are looking at us. In fact, we have sections of our bookstores and our libraries dedicated to this. It's called self-help. And, and, and I'm not trying to shame anybody who's like, that's my favorite section, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I'm simply saying this. The, the, the remedy for shame is not in self-help. You can't pull yourself out. You can't love yourself, be compassionate enough, and, and, and kind of build up your, your courage enough to go, I'm Okay. Because, again, it's that fool's errand of you're validating yourself with the wrong measure. You need somebody else. Look at verse 10, best verse that we read this morning. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it, and he is safe. See, the righteous refers to, it points to those who are right, those who are upright, those who are just. Such a person doesn't need to be weighed down by shame. It's possible. The, the proverb is alluding to, you know what? If you keep your nose clean, you won't feel shame. And that's a great way of walking through life. 
you know, do shady business, dabble in questionable relationships, that'll come back to you as shame. And if you don't want to experience that, keep your nose clean and, and life will go much better for you. But it's actually getting to something else because it says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. It doesn't say, you know what, good behavior will get you out, make you feel better. It's saying there, there is a name that is not your name which takes away shame. It creates a refuge and a strong tower. The, the imagery of a strong tower, whenever that comes up in Scripture, think fortress, think castle, think palace. Think this is, this is a architecture that will not be moved. This is not an imaginary castle as we might build to hide in our shame. This is lasting, and, and it's the Lord. And when, when we read the name of the Lord, that's speaking to his character. It's not a magical thing. So I don't want you to be like, the name of the Lord is this magical place that you need to run to. No, this is speaking to and referring to the character of our God, one who declares you, and through his goodness and his righteousness, declares you right upright and his own. If you need a verse to grab your handles on that and to, for me to give you as a proof text, go to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says this, for the sake, for, sorry, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, in, in Christ, you're, you're declared righteous. You're declared right. Our sin is the thing that, that actually... Places well-placed shame tells you you're wrong. You don't belong. This garden's not for you. This relationship is broken. And if you are feeling that, it's not that God designed shame, but he can use that to prompt your heart to go, there's something off here. The remedy to shame is not self-acceptance. It's being accepted by the one who has no shame, but became shame so that you might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's the heart of our biblical story. And that's wisdom. We need to drive that deep into our hearts because you will always combat with shame. Misplaced and well-placed. So, so if you're not a Christian or if you're a new believer this morning, you might be feeling, man, I, I, I don't know how to manage this. Stop trying to manage it. Receive what was not... Receive the remedy to what was not God's design, and that is shame. Something that is a consequence of what, when we said, hey, I'll rule my life. And by being accepted by the one who has no shame, we, we, it, it comes off. It's lost. And if you're a believer and, and you are still struggling with shame, you are still reminded, and by the way, it is misplaced shame if as a believer you have confessed and repented and yet you are still believing that ah, there's something still wrong with me, something still unacceptable about me. There's something so big and ugly uh, about my life or in an event in my life that God can't forgive, then that's misplaced shame because that's not what he has for you. You, it's like you're excluding yourself from the refuge that he provides in his son. This morning, we, we want to point your hearts towards that. That's not, not just wisdom, but that's, that's life as it's meant to be. As we bring together our understanding of who we are and an understanding of the world, that we need a refuge in this place. Hebrews 12, 2-3 says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and seated and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint faint-hearted. You see, Jesus drove a nail through your guilt into his pierced hands on the cross. He, in his life cut short, takes away your shortcomings. And he bore our shame that you would be clothed in his good pleasure and his righteousness. You see, the only righteousness, again, this is for those who have exchanged through repentance and faith, their shame for what Christ gives us as a rightness in him, allows us to stand in the strong tower of his precious name. In a moment, we're going to approach the Lord's table. As we come together, I, I, church, I'm encouraging you to go back. If, if, again, the Lord's table is for those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. And if you haven't done that, that you can do that in the quietness of your heart to say, Lord, I've built a life of rebellion against you. I've made my life a, a design of my own, and I've, I've shirked your design. And, Lord, all I have of, of that is shame and consequence. Lord, would you take that from me and give me the life that you wanted for me in the beginning? Because the gospel story is this, that he is the one who seeks and saves that if we have entered this world, that, that the way we are bent through shame is to be looking for somebody who's looking at us. Look no further because we don't need a self-help section. We, not, we need a who helped you section. And it has one book, and that's this one. Where he says, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost in their shame. And at the Lord's table, we can reconnect our gaze with him. Whether that's the first time or the first, or one of many times. So if you want that, the one who accepts you, the one who gives you belonging, identity, purpose, I invite you to receive it. Let me pray. Our music team's going to come up, share one song, and then afterwards I'll come up and lead us in communion. So Father, thank you for your word, and, and Lord, thank you for the promise that you give us. That our shame doesn't stick. We can be freed. It falls off. And thank you, Lord, that that's not found or manufactured or, Lord, even fabricated out of a false belief that we are just hoping through convincing the world, perhaps we'll convince ourselves that we're okay. Jesus, we don't have to do any of those gymnastics that are so tiresome and not helpful to what is so deeply troublesome to our hearts, and that is shame. Jesus, thank you that by looking to the one who feels no shame and has no shame that would ever stick because you've never done anything wrong, you took that all on for us so that we might walk in that freedom. Jesus, we ask for that. And for those of us who have already confessed and we've already know what it is to walk in you, Lord, Lord bring to our attention our hearts. Any place where we've been holding shame, where we've been saying, but yeah, but God, this one's a little bit beyond you, help us to know that no, it's not. Or, Lord, I don't want you to see this. Lord, you already see it. You're just waiting for us to invite you to look at it. And, Jesus, when we're so afraid to lift our gaze that, that anyone would meet us, that, Lord, we're reminded through the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that you came. You came to see us. I, I think of the prayer that Hagar prays in Genesis 16, where she felt lost, abandoned, betrayed, and thrown out to the wilderness, and then she... Lord, she experiences you, and she says, you're a God who sees me. Lord, would we experience that today? 
And as we are seen, may we have hearts that let go of shame. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.